Hello again, everyone. Welcome to it. It is the Derek Hunter Podcast for the 17th of uh, January, 2024. I would I have to think about every single one of those things. It is Wednesday, that much I know. I appreciate you listening, downloading, sharing, telling a friend, all that good stuff. Don't forget, there's one book in the contest this week. There's one book that matters. It's Bo Snurdly's Rush on the Radio, autographed by James Golden himself. So go to patreon.com slash Derek Hunter podcast or Derek Hunter.locals.com. Sign up, support the program, comment on the post. You're entered in and you've got a chance to win. It's better odds in the lottery. Trust me. Anyway, we've got a lot to get to. And I've been watching. We got a lot of snow. So um, the girls are excited. I have to record this so we can go back and sled in the backyard. And uh, they will. They absolutely go back bonkers for it so i gotta make this quick or whatever or interesting whatever the hell i gotta do i gotta do it quickly so that i am not disowned by a five and a six-year-old and we can get back out there freezing our asses off so let us get on with the program like i say we got a lot of things to get to as always never a dull moment even when you want one but when you look at the news out of Iowa last night, you have to give props to Donald Trump. He won the Iowa caucuses. And again, that Donald Trump won the Iowa caucuses was not unexpected. So it's like, okay, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What do you care? What does it matter? In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. It took out Vivek Ram. Poor Vivek Ram. Poor one out for Vivek today. Well, yeah. He uh, accomplished his mission. He sold a bunch more books. He raised his name recognition and put himself in line for a cabinet position. That was all he really ever wanted. He never could decide what he wanted to be. In the first debate, he was the jackass. Remember, he was attacking everybody. I'm the only honest person. Everybody up here is corrupt. Everybody does that and the other thing. And it's like, okay, um, most people don't know you. I get that you've been on Fox a lot, but that doesn't count as the real world. Very few people relative to the population, watch Fox. So, you know, that's not the best way to introduce yourself. Don't walk into somebody's house the first time you meet them, kick your snowy boots up on their coffee table and go, why don't you make me a sandwich? That's not the way to endear yourself to people. Well, he toned it back in the next debate, and it wasn't lost on people who watched it. They're like, wait a second. This guy went from everybody up here but me is corrupt to everybody up here is a good person inside of a week. Like, how do you how do, you do that inside of a week? Yeah, I don't know, but that's what he did. And that's what I mean by Vivek was never able to really find his stride. More than likely because he doesn't have a stride. More than likely because he doesn't know. He just saw an opportunity to make himself, I don't know, popular, more known, more widely known, more famous, whatever it was, I can't possibly understand the mindset of somebody who doesn't have a chance. Like, I don't understand Chris Christie's mindset. I could have told you five years ago, Chris Christie wouldn't stand a snowball's chance in hell of winning the Republican nomination in 2024, regardless of who was running. And still, he ran and he stayed in it for a long time. 
Asa Hutchison is technically still running for president. Did you know that? You probably didn't know that. He pulled a solid 0.1% in the Iowa caucuses yesterday, which, you know, I can mock, but he's he still beat me. But I would say he beat me by only one-tenth of 1%. That tells you how little support Asa Hutchison had. And I don't think he dropped out. I don't think he had an event. I don't think most of the media knows that he technically is still running for president of the United States, honestly. But, of course, Donald Trump did win. Donald Trump got uh, a record. Now, now I'm going to get into some numbers here because I want to give everything some perspective. Because it matters. And there are warnings in this for Republicans if Republicans aren't willing or are willing to... uh, listen to them, to pay attention to them, because it'll be important. Donald Trump won, what did he get, 51%, got, uh, yeah, 51% of the vote, DeSantis came in second, 21.2%, and Nikki Haley came in third at 19.1%. We'll talk about her in a bit. Now, this was a contested primary. You have the, uh, arguably, the most successful and conservative governor in the country up there in the number two slot gets a lot of attention. Donald Trump, as a very popular former president, Nikki Haley, I don't know who Nikki Haley appeals to. She doesn't really fall into either one of those categories, but she's out there and she's been polling well. So the passions are high. People are excited. Everybody going blah, blah, blah. Turnout was low. Now, the weather was not great, but this is Iowa. It's not Florida. It's not like suddenly there was a huge snowstorm in Florida that really kept down turnout. It's Iowa. So just to give it some perspective, Trump won with 56,260 votes. It's not a lot. If you go back to, that constituted, by the way, 51% of the vote. To give you some perspective, in 2016, Donald Trump was out there um, lying. He's lying. He knows he lost in 2016. He lost the uh, Iowa caucuses in 2016 to Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz got 27.6% of the vote. Donald Trump got 24.3% of the vote. It's not within the margin of error. It's not within somebody screwed up counting. Donald Trump lost, straight up, undoubtedly. Ted Cruz won Iowa last time with 51,666 votes. Now, juxtapose that, Donald Trump, 56,260 votes this time. Donald Trump this time got more votes than Ted Cruz did last time. But last time when Ted Cruz won, that 51,666 constituted 27.6% of the vote. The turnout has dropped significantly. There were 186,874 votes. Now, granted, it was it was a contested primary. It was right. It, it was there was a a lot of people running in 2016. The field was varied. The field was wide. But you're getting close to a hundred thousand votes this year 
and he had 180,000 votes. Now, what happened? Some of that can be chalked up to the weather. Some of it can be chalked up to lack of enthusiasm. It can. But it's something that Republicans need to look at, need to be aware of, need to be cognizant of. You can't be aware of it if you're sitting there congratulating yourself. You say a win is a win is a win. Yes, a win is a win in the Republican Party primary. But you need to look bigger picture than that about enthusiasm. Enthusiasm matters. Enthusiasm has to matter. And where is it? Now, certainly not on the Democratic side. There doesn't seem to be any enthusiasm this time. So I suppose, theoretically, as long as both sides are a teenage girl indifferent to a family dinner sort of level of enthusiasm, you can be all right, everything being equal. But you've got to remember what the Democrats are capable of doing. Look back to 2020. What Democrats can do, what they do do, and what they desperately need to do is keep their base just below boiling over. Keep them in an emotional fugue state where they are mobilized, they are ready, they are this, they are, they are just this side of storming the castle. And it's a delicate balance. Every once in a while, James Hodgkinson blows, boils over and somebody tries to kill a bunch of Republicans. That will hurt Democrats, provided the media reports on it, but they, they probably wouldn't. But they need to keep it just below there. Why? Because if you're in an emotional state, you're more than likely to do... You're easy to manipulate in an emotional state. You're upset, you're angry, you're excited, whatever it is. Do you think that the people who celebrate some team's championship somewhere, all those riots you've seen, which Detroit, by the way, pioneered, I believe they did after the 1984 World Series. I, I think my hometown pioneered the I'm so happy I could flip a cop car and set it on fire mentality. But you see it all the time. People who otherwise would never have done these sorts of things. Flipping over cop cars. Going absolutely crazy because their sports team won or their sports team lost. It doesn't really matter. It's that mob mentality. The left needs to keep that mob mentality just from boiling over. The Democratic Party is a coalition of groups of people that, since Democrats play identity politics, they pit against each other when it suits their needs, but they try to prevent them from recognizing that and, uh, the rest of the time. And it's a difficult balance. So you can have a summer of riots in 2020. And as long as it didn't get a whole bunch of people. It got people killed. Police officers were killed. Normal people, homeless people were killed. People living in abandoned buildings that they just had. They were killed. It didn't really matter. They weren't people that count. So they just kind of ignored them. They didn't boil over into really damaging the base of the Democratic Party, which is wealthy white suburban women. All right, the Chardonnay set or offending them either. It was why you could sit there in front of a, a burning building. That's why these people beclown themselves, sitting in front of a burning building. It's mostly peaceful. It's mostly peaceful while the B-roll is some storekeeper getting holy hell beaten out of them because they tried to defend their, their life's business. That kind of mentality. 
So they need to keep people just below the surface in an emotional state so they can manipulate them. That will bring up a lot of enthusiasm that isn't necessarily organic. It doesn't matter from where the enthusiasm comes. The motivation comes from the enthusiasm. As long as you're motivated, it doesn't matter. It could be, I hate Donald Trump. It could be, I love Joe Biden. Probably not, I love Joe Biden, even at a Joe Biden family reunion, unless it's the day that the Chinese communists and the Ukrainians and the Russians are dispersing their, their payments. But I hate Republicans is enough. So it's worth noting that turnout was down significantly, almost 40%, maybe almost 50%. Republicans need to find a way to get that enthusiasm. Now, it could, it could be the weather. We'll find out. One week from today, we'll have the results from the New Hampshire primary. So maybe we will uh, we'll see an uptick there. But if we're seeing depressed turnout, and this is one thing I try and impress upon Donald Trump supporters who are absolutely dyed-in-the-wool Donald Trump supporters, the amount of love that you have for him may matter to you, and it probably does. And I'm not trying to ridicule that. But it doesn't translate to more broad-based support. Somebody has a full-blown, dedicated love for a political candidate, they still only get one vote, and it still only counts one time. If that candidate turns off other people, the vote still counts just once. It's about getting the most votes in each state. It's not about getting the most fervent support in each state. And what I would like to see, and what Donald Trump did a little bit last night, was attempt as best he could, and after the first contest, nobody's going to drop out anyway except for Vivek, but to attempt to try to mend the fences to try to say, all right, the other people aren't necessarily the monsters that I've been saying they are. They're good people. They ran good campaigns. He's going to need their support. That message has to get to his army of flying monkeys that go crazy on Twitter, who are some of the most insufferable human beings on the face of the earth. There's good winners, there's bad winners, and they're bad winners. And even they're worse losers. I don't blame them for being bad losers, but my God, if you're going to need, you, you have to understand that there aren't enough of you. If everybody who absolutely loves Donald Trump, loves Donald Trump, dedicated to Donald Trump, kept a Trump sign up since 2016, and there are a lot of them. I see them when I drive all over the place. There aren't enough of you. If you just get those people's support, you'll lose by, I don't know, 60 points. You have to get other people. You have to. The 51% of people in Iowa who voted for Donald Trump after you basically have the prior electorate, they love Donald Trump, they support Donald Trump, they're in. But that leaves 49% who don't or who wanted someone else. So... Keep that in mind as we go through these numbers, as we go through the results, as we look at things. It definitely is worth 
taking a second to go, oh, wait a second. We need to see. Donald Trump got 51,000 votes in a state that he won the popular vote in 2020 with 897,672 votes. So where is that dedication? Maybe it exists, maybe it doesn't. But somebody needs to figure this stuff out and needs to be thinking about it. I honestly, I don't know. This is chess. It ain't checkers. I honestly don't know that anybody is. I hope to God somebody is. I just, I want to impress upon everybody what we're up against. And I don't know that everybody realizes what Republicans are up against, what conservatives are up against, what what Donald Trump will be up against. They're in the euphoric state and the media, the Fox is definitely coalescing around Donald Trump again. They have for some time. They called the race before people started voting. Now, 830 last night during Jesse Waters show, Martha McCallum and Brett Bear was in there going, oh, we can call the race. We can call. Really? It's an hour earlier in Iowa. And here's how caucuses work. People don't seem to know how caucuses are the dumbest way to vote. Let's just put that out there. The dumbest way to vote. But you show up, you sit in a place. It's not a secret ballot, really. It's sit in a gym and uh, people from the various campaigns or representatives or fans or whatever, they give a speech. This is why you should vote for Vivek. This is why you should vote for DeSantis. This is why you should vote for Trump. And they argue with each other and they take questions. And it's a long, arduous process. And then everybody kind of goes into a corner. You on over there, you go for this one, and you over there for this one. And they break up. And then they get a chance to try and convince each other to change their vote. It is a long process. Voting doesn't start just because, well, the Iowa caucuses start right at 7 o'clock. Voting doesn't start at 7 o'clock. A primary, it does. The polls are open. You walk in, you check the ballot, you walk out, you're done. Caucus requires a commitment. Like I say, it's a, well, just a wildly stupid way to vote. We know how there are better ways to vote. And you're like, yeah, but we want to do it the worst way. All right, whatever. Uh, but it takes a long time. It can take a very long time. The arguments can be extended. People can change their votes. Once you see, hey, Earl, what are you doing over there for this one? Why don't you come over here for that? It can take a very long time. And Fox called it a half an hour after the buildings opened to vote. They all did. The Associated Press did. CNN did. CNN violated. They all have these so-called ethical standards of calling elections where they go, we do not call any elections or release any polling exit data until after the polls have closed. The polls hadn't closed. There were reports of people and people complaining that they were getting notifications on their phones while they were sitting there before they had voted that the race had been called for Donald Trump. And do I think that made a difference? No. Do I think it made a difference in the, not, not the order of finish, but in the, the amount of votes, the percentage? It could have. It could have. Trump's victory was so big that I don't think that, you know, 25,000 people walked out. But could a 1,000 to 2,000 have? Hell yeah. Could somebody on their way get a notification on their phone and go, well, what's the point? Even if it could have hurt Trump too. Trump might have won with more than 51% of the vote. If somebody who's going to vote for Trump is pulling into the parking lot and they see it's over, well, why the hell would you bother to vote? Why would you go? What's the point?
it's just wildly destructive on part of the media to do this stuff. But they don't care. They're not about... And you sit there and you think, well, Fox is the... Fox is, is conservative pandering. I don't believe for a second knowing uh, quite a few of the people who work there. Some of them are conservatives. Some of them are just Republicans. A lot of them aren't anything. They just have jobs. Some of them are downright liberal. They know what they have to do. They know what they have to say. They know how they have to do it. You look at the so-called conservatives over on CNN. I can't say Michael Steele. Michael Steele's a bit of a... I know Michael Steele. He's a bit of a... Well... He's angry that he didn't get reelected to be RNC chair. He's bitter about that, and he uh, was never all that conservative to begin with. But they will say the things they need to say. I know Michael Steele says a whole bunch of crap on MSNBC that he he doesn't really believe. But it doesn't matter. Even the Democrats will say things on MSNBC. I know that they don't believe that contradict everything they stood for. Claire McCaskill knows what a woman is. She made her whole political career going, I'm a woman, hear me roar. And now she's like, you know what? Look at the penis on that woman over there. Anybody can be a woman. It's insane. These people know what they're doing. They recognize what they have to do to keep their job. Their job is influence. Their job is money. Their job is fun. A lot of these people are filthy rich and have nothing better to do. They don't really believe in anything. You don't have to believe in it. You just know, look, I know what a woman is. So you're, it's just a whole bunch of crap over there at these networks. It really is garbage. You come away misinformed. You come away disinformed. You come away lied to. But unfortunately, the people who watch these networks, they want to be lied to. There isn't anybody on MSNBC who watches MSNBC who doesn't want to be told that all Republicans are Hitler. There just isn't. There isn't anybody who watches Fox who doesn't want to come away thinking, oh, man, Joe Biden sucks. The American people see it. This is going to be a bloodbath. This election is already won. You come away with the impression you want based on the world you create for yourself. Somebody somebody coming on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November is going to be in for a very, very rude awakening. I don't know who. I hope I you know, I hope it's not me, but somebody is. I want to play you because just so you know what Donald Trump is up against, what Repu- all Republicans will be up against. It starts with Donald Trump, but it doesn't end with Donald Trump. It will never end with Donald Trump. It just happens to be about Donald Trump right now. He's the convenient foil. One day Donald Trump will recede from public life. One day Donald Trump will pass away, as we all will. It is how the media works. They'll just shift him in. Bush was Hitler. McCain was Hitler. Romney was Hitler. Trump was Hitler. You would think a, a thinking person watching... Rachel Maddow's conspiratorial rants would go, oh, wait a second, every, every, if everybody's Hitler, then nobody's Hitler. But no, they all just go, oh, you're Hitler, they're Hitler, wouldn't you like to, it's the Dr. Pepper song, wouldn't you like to be a Hitler too? Whoever's next will be Hitler, they started painting DeSantis as Hitler, Nikki Haley is Hitlerette, whatever you want, they are just They are one-trick pony. The alternative is trying to defend Joe Biden. I mean, who the hell wants to do that? Who can do that? So they're not interested 
in doing that. It's easier. You always take the path of least resistance if you're lazy. So you end up in a situation where everybody's Hitler. When you call everybody Hitler, you can't let your audience see that person. You can't let your audience hear from that person in their own words. Not live anyway. Now, you can take a 20-minute speech, find 15 seconds in it that you can snap out of context and go, aha, see, here he is being Hitler. But you can't let them see it live. Why? Because some people, while it's unlikely that there aren't very many thinking people watching MSNBC, but it's possible that somebody will be watching that and go, that doesn't sound like Hitler. That doesn't sound like Hitler at all. That is, you know, we really do have the the vast majority of Americans recognize we have a massive problem at our southern border. If Donald Trump talks about the massive problem at the southern border and how we have to stop it, even somebody who goes, well, Donald Trump must be Hitler, might hear that and go, well, that doesn't sound Hitler-esque. That actually sounds pretty good. I think we should do something about it. Then they run risk of original thought creeping in there. It's uh, the pandemic of thought creeping in to the left. Nothing scares the progressive media more than them getting information that is not approved by the progressive left. Why do you think groups like Media Matters for America exist? And why, why do you think that a good, I don't know, 70, 80 percent of the content on MSNBC is clips from Fox? They don't say, they do say, we watch Fox so you don't have to. But ultimately, they're really saying, we watch Fox so you won't. Because they are scared to death that their audience might watch Fox. And if their audience watches Fox, a small percentage of people would have some things register with them that they'd find curious. Wait a second. That's not the monster. That doesn't sound like they're calling for death. They're not doing that. It would begin to question. Some people would begin to question some things. They can't have that. That's what absolutely terrifies these people, if we're being honest with each other. So when MSNBC last night... When it came time for Donald Trump to give his speech, they didn't cover it at all. They will not cover Donald Trump live at all because something they don't approve of might make its way out under their airwaves. And that could cause people to think, and that could be problematic. So when Donald Trump started to speak, Rachel Maddow came on and said this. Interject. Sorry. I'm sorry, I just have to do a little bit no. of business just for a second. Um, at this point in the evening, the projected winner of the Iowa caucuses um, has just started giving his victory speech. Uh, we will keep an eye on that as it happens. Uh, we will let you know if there's any news made in that speech, if there's anything noteworthy, something substantive and important. Um, the reason I'm saying this is... Of course, there is a reason that we and other news organizations have generally stopped giving an unfiltered live platform to remarks by former President Trump. It is not out of spite. It is not a decision that we relish. It is a decision that we regularly revisit. Um, And honestly, earnestly, it is not an easy decision. But 
there is a cost to us as a news organization of knowingly broadcasting untrue things. That is a fundamental truth of our business and who we are. And so his remarks tonight will not air here live. We will monitor them um, and let you know about any news that he makes. They wouldn't show it. They won't show it. They won't show anything. Honestly, what Donald Trump should do is refuse to credential MSNBC, NBC News, any of their affiliates, any CNN as well. CNN cut away. We'll play a Jake Tapper in a second. But they, they should just refuse to allow them entry into things. These are private events, these victory parties. The media pass gets them in. They have media. Don't let NBC News properties in. If they aren't going to cover it like news, don't treat them like news. Don't give them access. Shut them out completely and encourage other Republicans to do the same. The Republican Party really does need to take a stand against this. You won't find very many Democrats, members of Congress, going on Fox News. Joe Biden won't go anywhere near a safe interview with Martha McCallum and Brett Baer. They're, they're the Melba toast of journalism. But because they're associated with Fox, they're not interested. They're not going to do it. Republicans need to return the favor. Don't credential them. Donald Trump said nothing offensive, nothing wild, nothing monstrous during his speech, which is what MSNBC was, in fact, most afraid of. They've convinced their lemmings who watch their shows that Donald Trump has horns. He breathes fire, and during every speech, he sacrifices at least three sweet, sweet, nourishing migrants to uh, the fire gods in a pit of lava. They can't have their audience seeing that he doesn't. They can't have their audience hearing unapproved messages. The official paper of the Nazi party did not run dissenting opinions in their op-ed page. Pravda did not have guest opinion pieces about the virtues of capitalism and freedom and individual rights. That was not their bag. And MSNBC will not allow dissenting opinions on their airwaves. They just won't. To sit there and be lectured by the people who to this day insist that Russia interfered in the 2016 election, after knowing full well that the whole thing was a hoax perpetrated by the Clinton campaign, started by the Clinton campaign, is laughable. To hear them talk about election denialism and then have on the rabid pile of human excrement like Jamie Raskin, whose very first act as a member of Congress after taking the oath of office in 2017 was to try to block the certification of the 2016 election, to try and block the electors from having their votes certified. The very same thing he would accuse Donald Trump of doing four years later, as though he wasn't even in town that month is a testament to just how fraudulent this entire political movement is. But this entire political movement does control a whole hell of a lot. You can sit there and say, we've got the number one name in news. Uh, no, you've got the most popular cable news channel. 
For all intents and purposes, there are three cable news channels. I know there's News Nation, there's News... Nobody's watching them, all right? It doesn't matter. More people attend high school football games than in one particular, any particular high school football game, than watch News Nation at any given moment. They just don't have the audience there. And they're not growing because they're not putting out a particularly good product in either one of them. They're the production value of a high school AV class. Spend some money, put together a good product, then maybe you can detract an audience. But they don't seem to do that because the value in these companies is in the value of these companies, not in the revenue from these companies, not in the audience of these companies. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. Al Gore got $300 million for selling current TV to Al Jazeera about 10 years ago now. $300 million. Current TV was a waste of time network where people submitted their own, quote, reports that they'd recorded on their phone. They had shows that were just random people around spewing left-wing rhetoric from their phones as if it were a news report. And that was worth $300 million. No, it wasn't. It got a few thousand viewers, but it was in 80 million homes. That meant that 80 million people had the opportunity to watch it and chose not to because it sucked. But that was the value of the company. It had no revenue. It had no value in and of itself in the way you traditionally think of companies. But because they had the potential to reach this audience. They were in their houses already and getting carriage on cable news, on cable, tele- on cable television, cable systems, and satellite systems is hard to do. There's limited bandwidth, although it's expanding. That's the value of a company. Newsmax is a billion-dollar company, not because anybody watches it, but because it's in so many homes. News Nation, the same thing. It doesn't have any, it doesn't have any revenue to speak of. It's not profitable. It's not raking in the cash. It has value that it can borrow against and raise money against by selling stock and what have you, investments, and getting seed rounds from venture capitalists, because it has the ability to eventually sell itself to somebody else for a lot of money. Being worth a lot doesn't... You could own a a whole series of giant buildings and have no revenue and be absolutely broke, but still be a millionaire or a billionaire. Farmers, the uh, death tax. You sit there and you go, well, death tax only impacts somebody who has $5 million, makes $5 million. It's not makes $5 million. It has a net worth of $5 million. You could have a farm that nets in profits $30,000 a year after everything is said and done, but they could have $20 million worth of equipment and land. That farmer dies, you got to pay the death tax. The piper demands to be paid because that's the way the Democrats set it up. The rich hedge fund guy, they've set all their money into tax-free trusts and offshore accounts, and they know exactly how to get around paying anything from the death tax. The Kennedys have a half a billion dollars in family wealth and over the course of their history as a family have paid less than $50,000 in death taxes. Why? Because they know what they're doing. A farmer can't do that. Everything that these people tell you and that they commit to you is an absolute lie. It is a giant pile of horse manure. Why would they tell you the truth now? Why would they 
suddenly get a conscience now. This is what we're up against. Fox News, on its best day, gets less than 1% of the United States population. About 3 million people. On a good day, one show can pull in 3 million people. It's normally closer to 2 million. That's more than ABC, or that's more than NBC, or MSNBC and CNN, yes. And oftentimes it's more than those two networks combined. It's still 1% of the population. If you look at the nightly newscasts from the three broadcast networks, they get about 20 million people total. 3 million versus 20 million. That's not to mention the local newspapers. That's not to mention the internet sites. That's not to mention the local TV stations. The audience becomes exponentially larger. You're getting 30, 40 million people a day, 60 million a week being exposed to left-wing propaganda through these other outlets, and you've got Fox News preaching to the choir. The choir might have a lovely voice, but do you really think they're going to be able to drown out the death metal coming from next door? I don't think so. You have to have a plan to get around these people. And if they aren't going to participate in any kind of rational, decent way, like MSNBC cutting away, going, we're not going to carry Trump, we're not then you can't give them access. You can't give them anything. Cut them out completely. They want to treat you like an other, like a mutant, like an unworthy member of the species, then return the favor. There is nothing. Turnabout is the fairest of plays. Give them a giant dose of their own medicine. They can complain all they want, but it's their fault that it's a spiky suppository. They created it. Make sure they take it. I want to. It wasn't just MSNBC, by the way. That you're sitting there, you're up against it. Oh man, what are you going to do? It is all of it. It is all of it. Jake Tapper over at CNN. They fell asleep at the switch or whatever. And they went and played some of Trump's speech. Now, Trump, Trump's speech was not a fire, brim, brimstone, oh, my God, we've got a murder of it. No, it was nothing like that. It was nothing like Joe Biden's, these people are monsters and they need to, the MAGA Republicans are a threat to democracy and need to be, nothing like that. Which they gleefully carried, which I assume in the Tapper household, as well as the Maddow household, is viewed as foreplay. Honey, let's let's put on the the Biden speech from South Carolina. Ooh, ooh, all right. Let me. I'll light the candles. You go get the Biden speech queued up on YouTube, and I'll open a bottle of a box of Chardonnay. The Tapper household. Dick Tapper's, by the way, one of the thinnest skinned human beings you could ever possibly meet. He, routinely, I've gotten many direct messages. It's been a while, but. Many direct messages when you're just mildly critical of anything that is tangentially related to him. It's like, what are you doing? I'm doing this. You can't. You don't know. And I'm like, Jake, dude, I didn't even talk about you. Calm down. Wildly, wildly insane. But he played a little bit of Trump's speech and then he cut away. And recognizing that he could be in trouble at the next neighborhood watch meeting for the progressive left. He had to come in with some sort of excuse as to what, some sort of comment, some sort of snide comment. Listen to little Jakey's snide comment at the end when they finally pull away from the Trump speech. 
We're going to seal up the border. Because right now we have an invasion. We have an invasion of millions and millions of people that are coming into our country. I can't imagine why they think that's a good thing. Donald Trump declaring victory with a historically strong showing in the Iowa caucuses if these numbers hold. The biggest victory for a non-incumbent president in the modern era for this contest. A relatively subdued speech as these things go so far, although here he is right now under under my voice. You hear him repeating his anti-immigrant rhetoric. Yeah, that anti-immigrant rhetoric. We can't have floods of human beings from all around the world who we don't know, just millions of people, 300,000 in the month of December, flooding into the United States unchecked and being welcomed. And given work permits. Yeah, no, anti-rhetoric, anti-immigrant rhetoric. I mean, to, MS, or to CNN, not that there's much of a difference. To CNN, that could be it. But I think Jake Tapper realized that, oh my God, we're playing this thing. Rachel Maddow's birthday's coming up. There's going to be a party. If I don't get an invite to that, I don't know what I'm going to do. My contract is up soon. I need to get out of here. Sooner or later, while ratings don't matter at CNN, sooner or later they might. And if they do, I'm screwed. That is not journalism right there that Jake Tapper was practicing. That was progressivism there that Jake Tapper. It makes sense. Jake Tapper made his bones. He was a a Democrat Hill staffer in the House when he got his start in politics. He got his start in politics, by the way, because he went on a date with Monica Lewinsky. He'd gone on a date with Monica Lewinsky. Apparently, at the same time, she was uh, dating the president of the United States. And once it became known, being the opportunist that Jake Tapper is, he contacted a whole bunch of people. And I think he found interest at Slate saying, hey, I've been on a date with Monica Lewinsky. I could write about it. It was long before any of this was known. But what the hell? exploit it. Let me exploit this poor girl at the worst moment of her lifetime. And Jake Tapper did. He found the editors to say, yeah, exploit. That'll be great, Jake. And so he wrote it up. And that's how Jake Tapper became known. That's how he transitioned from low-level Hill staffer to low-character-level journalist. Shouldn't surprise anybody, but I don't think the details are known. Now, when I sit here and I'm talking about all the damage that uh, whatever can do and this can do and the insulation of various people in their little media worlds and everybody in their little media worlds, there was a moment last night on MSNBC. You sit there and you're tempted to say this is all about Donald Trump. This is all about Donald. It's not about Donald Trump. It's never really been about Donald Trump. It's It's about anybody who dare challenge the norm. Anybody who dare do anything outside of the approved progressive messaging, mindset, accomplishments, what have you. And what do I mean? Rachel Maddow last night, and it was really bizarre. Fox put together a special panel. It's the same people all the time. Foxes, if you just turn it on, you thought, was this a rerun from the last election? MSNBC didn't even try. They just took everybody who's on their their primetime lineup and they said, all right, we're all going to do a show together. 
So you got the lady who cries racism. It's weird. Joy Reid cries racism all the time. She is the first to sit there and go, well, cultural appropriation. She's blonde right now. I'm not sure that blonde is her natural hair color. I am sure I don't want to verify that. But I am not sure that blonde is her natural hair color. Yet when a Kardashian, you know, gets braids in their hair, that is cultural appropriation. The left absolutely soils themselves about it. Oh, this is wrong that they're doing that. Joy Reid shows up one day blonde and everybody goes, looking good, looking good, Mo. She's got the Mo haircut. She does. I'm sorry. But you dye that hair black, she looks like Mo. But Mo was funny and smart. Anyway, Rachel Maddow then decided to step up and uh, let the world know. She says the quiet part out loud. Left has been doing that an awful lot. And this is what happens when you lead an, an insulated life. You think it's just, it's just us girls talking. Nobody needs to know. Nobody has to worry about it. Everybody here agrees. When everybody here agrees with you, you can say the things that everybody knows that you wouldn't say in front of other people who aren't in on the joke, right? It's that knowing look that somebody would give, like, all right, now I'm going to say something that's going to be um, misogynistic or maybe racist. They look around, make sure nobody's looking. They don't have to do that anymore. They wouldn't do that before because somebody might be listening. Now they recognize that, look, there's a panel of seven people. There's Larry O'Donnell, there's Chris Hayes, there's uh, Rachel Maddow and Joy Reid and I don't know, Jen Psaki was there. Like, really? You're going to get serious analysis, honest analysis from the former White House press secretary, Ginger Goebbels. Yeah, that's all right. That's, that's, that's NBC News, the brand now. Another reason why they need to be shut out. Anyway, Rachel Maddow, just us girls talking in the green room, says the quiet part out loud that it's not Donald Trump. It's the whole Republican Party. The whole Republican Party. That is the problem. And the big picture takeaway from that, and I don't mean to be, again, too dark, as you said, on this, but it is not... If we are worried about the rise of authoritarianism in this country, we are worried about potential rise of fascism in this country. If we're worried about our democracy falling to an authoritarian and potentially fascist form of government, the leader who is trying to do that is part of that equation. Mm -hmm. But people wanting that Correct. is a yeah. much mm -hmm. bigger part mm -hmm. of that That's equation. Right. And the American electorate is made up of two major parties. One of those parties has been flirting with extremism on the ultra-right for a very long time. They've brought them in in a way that they haven't been central to Republican electoral politics ever before. And I know because I've been studying this. But once you have radicalized one major party so that those are the preferences of the people who adhere to your party, the leader is interchangeable. And yes, Trumpism is sometimes what we call it. Mm -hmm. MAGA movement is probably a better way to do it. But there is an authoritarian mm -hmm. movement inside yes. Republican politics that isn't being bamboozled by Trump. Mm -hmm. They are pushing Trump That's to right. get more and more right. extreme because the more extreme things he says, the more they, the like more they adhere and to him. That yeah. and, and that is coming from a very large proportion of the American right that adheres to the Republican Party. And that's why this is a Republican Party problem more than it is the problem mm -hmm. of one man. Yeah, no, it's a Republican Party problem. It's the Trump. It's not Trump now. It's the Trump supporters. What we need is a good purge. What we need is to re-educate these people. What we need is to, you can imagine where that goes from there. We have the history of the 20th century where 100 million people were slaughtered on the altar of progressive politics 
to create a utopia that is impossible. But I love how they, they always project. They're flirting with fasc fascism is of the left. Fascism, socialism, communism, there isn't really a dime's worth of difference. The difference is on the margins, and it's ultimately those three groups fought during the progressive movement because they wanted to be the one in control. They wanted to be the dominant group of people. It had nothing whatsoever to do with fascism and, and communism and socialism. They're completely unrecognizable to one another. They're not. The Nazis, Nazis stood for the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Do you think they just, for a gas, they threw in the, the socialism part? Gas might be an inappropriate way to put it, but I don't care. You get it. For a laugh, hey, let's pretend we're socialists. No, you're the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Progressivism was rampant. There were communists, fascists, and socialists vying for power all throughout Europe and in this country. It just so happens that different groups won. The communists hated the socialists, not because they, one had a radically different view of the world. It was because they wanted to be the ones in power. They both wanted to be the ones in power. Stalin purged the fascists. Hitler purged the communists. That's how it worked back then. But somehow the left has managed to bastardize the language to the point is to be unrecognizable. I've said it before, I'll say it again. The political spectrum, it's a line, right? It's a line. You got the left, you got the right. Start off in the center. Everybody likes that, oh, the center is so virtuous. It's not. The center is you're just afraid to make a decision or you just don't care, whatever. But you've got this straight line. The size of government shrinks or grows depending on which way you go down that line. The Democratic Party is the party of bigger government and fewer individual rights. They want to strip you of your... The only thing they want you to have any choice and any say on whatsoever is abortion. They want to force everybody to pay for it. On the right, the further you go out, the smaller government gets. Now, realistically, you go far enough out on the left, absolute giant government control communism, right? Right there. Communism, socialism, fascism, whatever. It's probably socialism first and fascism, then communism as the ultimate. You go out to the right, the end of that is anarchy. If it is limited government, and the further you go out, the more limited government is, the more individual rights there are, you end up to a point where there is no government, just rationally speaking, and it's anarchy. It's not a judgment on anarchy. Anarchy is the absence of government. It doesn't have to be a mess. It doesn't have to be anarchy as you think of it. It just turns out that it usually is because human nature is sometimes pretty. It's some people's human nature is good. Some people's human nature is bad. But the left and the Rachel Maddows of the world, if you listen to that speech, would have you believe that somehow as you go out, as you go out and there's more individual rights. You go out the right, there's more individual rights, there's less government interference, there's more individual freedom and responsibility. Somewhere out there, there's this giant blip for no reason whatsoever that suddenly there's a giant fascistic government that wants to tell everybody what to do, and then it goes back down and continues on its pathway towards anarchy. That is insane. That makes no sense whatsoever. But the left can't have you know that fascist, they need to call us something. They have to. Ultimately, like, can you believe those people? They want freedom. 
Well, that's not really a super good selling point. You're, wait, you're saying you don't want free? Those people over there on the right, they're fighting for individual freedom, the right to be able to, wait, uh, and that's scary because why? You lose that argument. So you have to say something. Well, you can't have it be communists. You can't call us communists because communism existed, well, it still exists, but communism existed as the main threat to the United States till 91. And there are far too many people who are still alive today who remember that it was the Democratic Party who was super friendly to communists. There are far too many people who remember that in 1984, I think it was 1984, Ted Kennedy secretly wrote a letter to the premier of the Soviet Union saying, don't deal with Ronald Reagan, we're going to get rid of him. Don't worry, we understand, comrade. We're on the same side here. They understand that. They recognize that. There are far too many people to this day who idolize Cuba. I mean, for God's sakes, what was it, 10 years ago or whatever, what's his face? Michael Moore, the mistake from Michigan, the planet, Jabba the communist, did a documentary about the virtues of the Cuban healthcare system. They love Cuba. So you can't really say that they're communists when you're spending a whole bunch of time sniffing the thrones of communists. Right? They're right now bowing to Beijing. You can't really say we're anti-communist. Nobody would believe you that they're anti-communists. You can't say those guys are the socialists because, well, they're advocating socialism too. So that leaves fascism. Fascism fell out of favor in 1939 when Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia and Poland. If you go back to the time before that invasion. And you go back even further out past Germany down to Italy and Mussolini, and then you look at the progressive movement and their academic writings here in the United States, and even people like Woodrow Wilson, the well-known racist that Democrats celebrated until they could no longer celebrate him. They kick and scream. And now they're like, oh, Woodrow Wilson, bad. Woodrow Wilson was a ra- There's no question Woodrow Wilson was a horrible racist. But it doesn't matter. He was a progressive hero. He tried to force government into people's lives and control over their lives. Those progressives back then praised Mussolini and praised Adolf Hitler, not because they were rounding up undesirable people, although that was part of it, but because the result of rounding up the undesirable people and their political opponents and, quote, re-educating them or just straight up executing them, freed them to impose their will on more people legislatively. It's weird. Even if you were opposed to a certain policy, if the guy sitting next to you in the government one day shows up dead to work and you know exactly who did it and why and there's a vote coming up, you don't have to be convinced to change your vote. You don't want to be shot. So you go, all right, I'll vote the way that the Fuhrer wants me to and don't worry about that. You get to stay alive. You don't have to kill everybody to get everybody to fall in line. You only have to really kill very few people. The threat of killing everybody. It's like the Old West, where they're showing up and they're going to go after the bad guy's been arrested and the lynch mob shows up and we're going to take justice, frontier justice on this guy. And there's the sheriff sitting there with a rifle with eight bullets in it. 
And there's a crowd of 40 people. And they're like, let us in, Sheriff. We, uh, you can't stop us. You don't have enough bullets. No, but I can shoot eight of you. Which eight of you want to get shot so that the other 32 can get in there? And suddenly everybody steps back. It's the same mentality. A couple people disappear. A couple people get show trials. A couple people get public executions. And suddenly nobody wants those things. They all start going, whatever you say, boss, whatever you want. I'll happily do what you want. Don't sweat it. Those are all progressives. They wrote in this country about the jealousy of what Mussolini and Hitler were able to accomplish from a progressive standpoint, policy-wise, and how our system of government was hindering their ability to do what they wanted to do, to impose a progressive agenda here in the United States. What Rachel Maddow said last night, which you just heard Rachel Maddow say, would have fit in perfectly with the rise of Mussolini, the rise of Hitler, the rise of Stalin, the rise of any of them. There isn't a dime's worth of difference. That could have easily been part of Castro's propaganda machine. And again, it boils down to they don't want their viewers, their listeners, their whatevers, to hear a dissenting point of view. I encourage you to listen to them. Not believe them, listen to them. Switch to MSNBC for a day. Just for, for as long as you possibly can. Watch that garbage. Watch them. See if you recognize that America. You won't. You won't. Now, I would tell people who watch that stuff to switch over to Fox and see if they recognize that America, and frankly, they won't either. Neither side is projecting the, the fairest, most accurate portrait of the world as it currently exists. But I do posit that Fox is at least closer. And in a world that is as screwed up as this and a media that is as awful as our media is, I suppose that's the best you can aim for. It's, it's something, even though it's only something slightly more than nothing, I guess. I do want to play you a little bit of Nikki, just a very, very little bit of Nikki Haley's victory speech, because she is an example. Look, a lot of politics is denial. A lot of politics is putting it. Look, DeSantis had a bad night last night. He did. I'm a DeSantis fan, but he had a bad night last night. He stupidly decided to put all his fate in Iowa, which was never a good idea. Iowa is not indicative of anything for the party. Historically, it's been a disaster to win Iowa. But he decided that was going to be his last stand. He should fire whoever came up with that decision. But he didn't go out there and try and say it was a massive victory. He went out there and said, basically, we came in second, it's a good thing, not bad, and now we're going on to fight another day, which is more honest, more realistic than Nikki Haley, who win. I've never seen a bronze medal winner go, you know what? Silver and gold are where it's at. If I were an advertiser, I would never, ever control. Nobody with a bronze medal is going to make it on a Wheaties box. They just, I'd never seen anybody win third and then negate themselves, negate their victory. Now, she doesn't do that. She's, of course, claiming that uh, her third place finish was a victory. And, well, 
I'll just let Nikki Haley explain it to you for herself. Here she is. I can safely say tonight, Iowa made this Republican primary a two-person race. Yeah, uh, you came in third. It's a two. It's just something about. I, maybe I'm a horrible misogynist. I don't know. But her voice, the more I pay attention to it, the way her cadence is, is so grating on me. Iowa made this. Come on. Just talk like a normal human being. I've seen you interviewed a thousand times. I've spoken with you. You don't talk that way. What is it about some people who, when they get in front of a group of, of, get in front of a group of anything, get in front of a group of human beings, they suddenly start talking like a condescending kindergarten teacher? Hillary Clinton had the same thing. Hillary Clinton can be quite personable. Not very often, usually involves drinking, but she can be. She talks like a normal human being would talk. Then you put her in front of a crowd and and we're going to go and do, and it's like, okay, you just pat everybody on the head and give them a nice lollipop? It's, you know, you can say you're a horrible misogynist or you're picking on all these women. Remember Elizabeth Dole? Remember Elizabeth Dole when she spoke at, I can't remember what Republican convention it was, but she went out, she had no teleprompter, she walked in a crowd, she, she had a handheld microphone. It was amazing, it was off the top of her head, it was coherent. She had a point. I don't know if she memorized it or organized it as she was going. Whatever it was, it was so well done. You thought, this this woman could give a speech. This woman should be a motivational speaker. This woman, I could listen to her talk all day. And she's a bit squishy on issues, but as far as the style goes, she was great at it. Nikki Haley just isn't. Nikki Haley just isn't. That's part of, I think, the appeal of Donald Trump, is you get the sense that this is how a guy talks when he's not giving a speech. When he doesn't have a microphone in his face, this is how he talks. People want that authenticity, and I don't get it from Nikki Haley. And when you sit there and you go, well, this is a two-person race, and you're in third place, I don't think that's very well thought out. We'll find out a week from today with New Hampshire. That's her line in the sand. But if she doesn't do something dramatic in New Hampshire. Doesn't have to beat Trump, but boy, howdy, she's got to put the fear of God into him. Then it's over for her. And the same goes for DeSantis. If he doesn't put the fear of God into Trump, whoever comes in, and it has to be a close second, next time, will have a justification for continuing to go on. And it's very bizarre. It's not, you sit there and you go, well, that's two states, and it's two of the smallest states. And so, I get it. I get it. But we have a timeline that is pretty relentless, and time is pretty relentless. You can stop. John Kasich stuck in the race in 2016 forever. I think he's still running his 2016 campaign. Who cares? But he was irrelevant. You can continue all you want, but at a certain point, you have to get out to save face so that you don't become a joke, so that you might have a political future down the road. Maybe they don't care about it, but if, if somebody doesn't either beat Donald Trump or come really damn close, there will be no justification going forward. But again, I would remind you that the number of votes are down dramatically. You're hearing it from a media that I think wants Donald Trump to be the nominee. Be careful what you wish for. 
but you're hearing it's a historic victory. It's a historic victory. Donald Trump, he got over 50%. He got this. Yes, all true. But if you control the unit of measure, you control everything. And the unit of measure, when somebody's just giving you percentages, demand the numbers. If somebody's just giving you numbers, demand the percentages. See both, and then you can draw a conclusion. Donald Trump got 51% of the vote. That is true. But the vote was down over 40% from 2016, the last time there was a contested election. The real question is, where did the people go? Why didn't the people turn out? It was a contested race. If they had shown up with the numbers that they had in 2016 or even more and Donald Trump dominated with 51 percent, then he would have an incredibly strong case to say that I'm essentially the nominee. And I can win the general election, the general election part being the most important part. But if you look at the numbers. You've got to wonder, where did these people go? Why did they not turn out? Was it the weather? I don't know. I don't think that 80,000 people in Iowa are that freaked out by a little cold, no matter how cold it is. These caucuses aren't held in barns. These caucuses are held in places with heat, in walled buildings where they're not exposed to the elements. What was different about this time? Where are the people who would crawl across broken glass to vote for Donald Trump. Where were they? Some of them showed up. Where were the rest of them? Because we're going to need them come the election. Donald Trump got 45,420 votes in 2016. He got 56,000. Okay, that's 11,000 more. But his 45,000 was 24% of the vote in 2016. Double that to get in, we'll call it 50%. You're looking at a 90,000 vote turnout if you just have the same percentage as 2016. He won with 56,000. There's something going on out there. It could be apathy. If it's apathy, whatever it is, Republicans and the Trump campaign in particular need to find out what it is, and they need to start working towards combating it now because you wait too long it's going to be a problem you wait till the general election or you don't ever acknowledge the problem that's a recipe for disaster if you look at all the polling donald trump winning national everybody's winning national polls against joe biden national polls don't matter this is 50 individual races this really comes down to about seven to ten swing states for the electoral college In those states, some of them, Donald Trump is doing a lot better than Joe Biden outside the margin of error. But in general, they're within the margin of error. Joe Biden is the least popular person to hold the presidency forever, forever, (laughs) since the history of polling, except for, you know, in various dips when the economy goes down or whatever, there's something that causes somebody to be temporarily unpopular. It is a massively unpopular president. Why in the hell is it? that any Republican is within the margin of error in polling. A lot of it has to do with there are some people who just don't like Donald Trump, but I think more of it has to do with what we're talking about with the media. 
And if you don't have a strategy for combating that, for overcoming that, you essentially have a strategy for losing. I want to play you a little clip from Joy Reid. She is ironically named. Not that I don't think she can read, although I don't necessarily have proof of that. But the joy part of her name, I find ironic. And again, she is blonde now. If a Kardashian were to put dreadlocks in her hair, Joy Reid would be leading the pitchfork brigade to destroy them forever for cultural appropriation. But somehow she can bleach out her hair and it's totally cool. And I guess I don't care about her hair that much. I just like pointing out the irony. But I do have to wonder what she's smoking, that she looks in the mirror and goes, this is the look. This is, this is, this is it. Because it's got to be some good stuff. Pass the duchy on the left-hand side, lady. Anyway, she is the race lady over at MSNBC, obsessed with it constantly. And she made an observation that if somebody else were to make the observation about, say, the state of Maryland, and the population of African-Americans here in Maryland and say that they are somehow overrepresented in the electorate, she would again pick up the torch and come to destroy you. But when it comes to white evangelical Christians, well, she has no problem with that, disparaging them and saying they're over. There's no such thing as overrepresented unless you believe in tribalism and ascribe to identity politics. You ascribe to identity politics either because you're stupid or you're intellectually lazy or both. Anyway, I'm over explaining it. Listen to Joy Reid. But, you know, I feel like the important sort of data point and, and you know, Steve talks about it a lot. He's, he's going to probably talk about it a little more tonight is that these, these are white Christians, that this is a state that is overrepresented, overrepresented by white Christians that are going to participate in these tonight. caucuses, yes. especially tonight. Um, I today earlier today reached out to Robert Jones, Robbie Jones um, from the Public Religion Research Institute, knowing that we were going to talk about Iowa. And this is a hyper evangelical st- white state. And he said the following to me. Iowa is about 61 percent white Christian. The country as a whole is approximately 41 percent white Christian. And in Iowa, we're talking about evangelical white Christians. And he said the following. Because I asked him, what do they get out of supporting Donald Trump? Because he keeps losing, he keeps delivering losses and losses and losses. And he said the following, they see themselves as the rightful inheritors of this country. And Trump has promised to give it back to them. All the things that we think about, about electability, about, you know, what are people gaming out or mm-hmm. none of that matters when you believe that God has given you this country, that it is yours and that everyone who is not a white conservative Christian is a is a fraudulent American, is a less, mm-hmm. less a less real American. Yeah, no, it's horrible. There's evil. white. There are far too many white. She's basically saying there are far too many white people in Iowa. Far too many white Christians, to be specific, because, you know, when you start, you can't round up all the white people from the start. You've got to start somewhere and you start the evangelicals first, then just the Christians, and then we'll take them all. Now, if she'd said, well, there are far too many, the black population of the state of Maryland is far too overrepresented by the rest of the population, that would be an accurate statement. The black population of Maryland is, constitutes 31.53% of the population. 
Black people in the country make about 12% of the population. So it's almost almost three times overrepresented. Would Joy Reid, has Joy Reid ever once talked about, especially in a Democratic primary, the overrepresentation of the black vote? Would she have ever said anything? Of course she wouldn't have. She doesn't. I would say she, I, I don't believe she knows that she's being a hypocrite. I think she's just being a good little progressive and expecting the pat on the head and the lollipop. That's the way it is. They have no reflective surfaces, I imagine, over there on the left, not only to because she couldn't walk on camera with that hair, but because there is no self-reflection. There is no recognition that you are what you profess to oppose, that you do what you are sitting there preaching against, that you are the parent with the Marlboro hanging out of their mouth, telling their kid that they shouldn't smoke. You don't get to smoke. Smoking is bad. Smoking is stupid. Okay, then put it out. Well, it's different when I do it. You can't drink. You're not allowed to drink. Now go get me another Pabst out of the fridge. I looked up the Public Religion Research Institute. <laughs> their website that, of course, Joy Reid goes to their own. That they are a uh, nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to conducting independent research at the intersection of religion, culture, and public policy. PRRI's research explores and illuminates America's changing cultural, religious, and political landscape. Their mission is to help journalists, scholars, and thought leaders, clergy, and the general public better understand debates on public policy issues, the important cultural and religious dynamics shaping American society and politics. They are a progressive organization. They throw religion in their name because it gives them a niche. They can then go on and claim to be experts on it. Now, I said, who the hell is Robbie Jones? Bobby, Robert P. Jones, this is their official bio on their website. The first thing about him is they have his pronouns. That tells you everything you need to know about the organization. Robert P. Jones, he, him is the president and founder of PRRI and a leading scholar and New York Times best-selling author. Huh. A leading scholar. In what? It doesn't matter. Just like Jill Biden is a doctor. A doctor of what? Well, she's got an EHD, not a PhD, not an MD or anything. EHD is an education doctorate, and it's really from a poorly written the doctoral thesis that, you know, would get a normal person bounced from the school and you could sue your your high school for making you illiterate. And, oh, by the way, her EHD thesis was on how community colleges can recruit and retain students. You're like, what? Yes, that's that's why everybody's falling on. That's why Oprah refers to her as Dr. Jill. Yeah. That's why her thesis, which I assume if you really did some research, she probably plagiarized and is really poorly written, is on how community colleges can recruit and retain students. Now, as somebody who attended a community college for a year because it was cheaper and I could transfer the student, uh, the uh, credit hours to a, a, a real university, 
You can only get an associate's degree from a community college. And the point of a community college, I assume, is to get people the hell out of there as quickly as possible. Shouldn't it be? Should it not be a launching pad and not a landing strip? Should it not? I, I would think that it is. I did have a friend who seemingly spent eight years taking every class at one community college in Michigan. <laughs> like every time you talk to her, like, you're still, still going to Macomb Community College. Okay. I don't know how. Like, they, they should make you president of the university at this point. Anyway, Robert P. Jones, is, he is the author of two New York Times bestseller, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future, as well as White Too Long, colon, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. <laughs> which won a 2001 American Book Award. And there he is. He is as white as the day. is. He's whiter than I am because he uses a pocket square, which is about short of a bow tie the, away from being absolutely translucent, completely clear. The pocket square and a bow tie, and I believe you just fade into eggshell white walls. But he's the guy, he's the expert, he's the leftist, that Joy Reid goes to. He enjoys self-flagellation and being publicly humiliated by his wife, I imagine. I don't, I'm just basing that on my best guess. But uh, yeah, the pocket square is a giveaway and it's orange and his tie is red, which makes it look even worse because it's his own website and it's a glamour shot he posed for. This is the expert that Joy Reid goes to to find out that white people, there are far too many white Christians in Iowa and it's not indicative of anything. Did I mention these people are gross? Because these people are gross. I want to point this out to because we're, we're in trouble. As the Biden administration and the Democrats in general are trying to push people to the green agenda and renewable energies and blah, 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 and all that crap, there are real-world consequences for this. There's, it's cold across the country, right? It's cold. Now, a lot of people use electric heat. Why? Because a lot of Democrats won't allow you to use gas anymore. But getting rid of the gas stove, lost in that is also that your gas furnace. I grew up with a gas furnace. I grew up with a gas stove. I prefer a gas stove. I don't have one now. But we don't have gas in the neighborhood. People have the propane tanks. Those, I didn't want to have a propane tank. Some of them are sitting next to the fireplace outside. I don't, that just seems like bad planning on my part, or on their part. But uh, I don't have that anywhere. We have the electric heat, which works fine, I guess, unless the power goes out for a long period of time. And then when it comes back on, electric heat has to keep turning off. It can only run for so long, whereas gas heat can run until you run out of gas or where I grew up, you didn't run out of gas because gas ran in the house. Um, but it's convenient because the second you turn it on, it'll run until when, I remember I, my bedroom was eventually moved upstairs after everybody else had moved out. I was in the basement for a long time, freezing to death. And then I was put upstairs because it was the whole upstairs in this 20 by 20 house. It was awesome. We could throw a football from one end to the other, from one window to the other, me and my friends. Nerf, of course. But uh, there was only one heat duck up there. So when the heat came on, there'd be a cat sleeping right in front of it, hogging, seemingly absorbing all the heat. And you'd sit in front of it when you're freezing. You put the bed right over it so at least the bed would be warm. 
but it would run forever. And there was the thermostat was just down the stairs. And it was an old mercury switch thermostat. And I'd reach around because it was right near my parents' bedroom. Reach and just try and nudge the thermostat just a little bit. And you could hear that click. And my parents could hear that click too. And I'd always hear that. What are you doing? Leave that thermostat alone. Stop doing that. I'm freezing to death up here. But I do love gas furnaces. But they're outlawing them. They're banning them. So that puts additional strain on the electric grid. Now, when it gets cold, you hear, the, you hear this in the summer all the time, when it's really hot, the air conditioners, they're rolling blackouts and brownouts in California because the grid is stretched too thin. They haven't upgraded the grid in a long time, and most importantly, they shut down every nuclear power plant in California. The production of energy is the problem. It's the draw of energy that strains the grid. If, you're not, if you have a lot of supply... You're not going to strain the grid as much, although the physical grid does need to be replaced. Now it's happening in winter, thanks to progressive policies and the EPA. Newsweek has the story. Texas residents were asked to avoid using large appliances such as washing machines to conserve energy as frigid temperatures threaten the state's power grid. The Electric Reliability Council of Texas, which operates 90% of the state's electric load, urge residents to conserve energy ahead of tight conditions as bitterly cold conditions hit the Lone Star State on Monday. Nearly the entire state was under some form of winter weather advisory, according to the National Weather Service, and conditions were not expected or were expected to last through Tuesday. The cold weather was likely to lead to high demand for energy and ERCOT. The ERCOT website suggested that Texans could conserve power by refraining from using large appliances. Other suggestions included lowering the thermostat by a degree or two, turning off and unplugging non-essential lights and appliances, turning off unused lights and equipment at commercial offices, and turning off heat at commercial businesses outside of operating hours. I don't know if people realize this, but you go, oh, we're going to turn off the heat to save electricity. And then the thing drops down to like 50 degrees inside. And then you come back in the next day. Now we'll turn on the heat. Well, getting it back up to 70 burns a hell of a lot of electricity. You're not really saving electricity. You're kind of postponing the electricity. You want to save electricity, get better insulation. Keep the heat or the cooling in. That's fine. But they're being advised to not use washing machines down in Texas. So if you're deep in the heart of Texas, expect people to smell soon. But ultimately, the only way to get out of this, there are more people. There are more people in this country. There we're probably, with the illegal alien influx, we're between 330 and 350 million people, somewhere in there, probably. That's going to add a little bit of additional strain to the power grid. But what adds a bigger strain is the lack of adding new sources of electricity to the power grid, the supply. You can't increase the supply. You don't increase the supply and demand keeps growing. You have to stretch things thinner. That puts strain on this. The drawing power from the power plants, it's being drawn. That's where the strain is. If you increase the supply, you build some, I don't know, what is it? Coal-fired power plants. 
I realize environmentalists are clutching their pearls now, fusing their hands to their pearls over the thought of that. But uh, if you think that you can just will your way out of this or put some sweaters on and be perfectly fine with this, you aren't understanding the nature of the problem. You have decreased supply relative to the population and in real terms. Shutting down existing power plants because you do not like them doesn't magically mean that it comes from somewhere else. There's a finite supply of electricity, and it is whatever you can generate. And if you shut down some of the generating plants, you have then put a larger strain on the remaining plants. And when you say we cannot have nuclear power because nuclear bad and you can't articulate it, but you're out there taking to the streets, gluing yourself to paintings and roads and buildings and demanding that we become carbon neutral. And then you say, well, actually, nuclear power generation is honestly the only way of generating power that's carbon neutral. It truly is. There's no CO2 emissions at all. If you really buy into that hype and the garbage about global warming, nuclear is the way to go. But they don't like nuclear because it's never really been about the environment. It's about control. It's about power to them. They can dictate the terms under which you use electricity. They control you. They control you. If you're worried about CO2 and the carbon footprint, well, I got some bad news for you about how it is solar panels are made and how they get here from China. <laughs> we don't have transporter technology. And we don't have a way to make any of those things other than using petroleum products, other than increasing the CO2 pumped out by the factories that produce them. And oh, by the way, they aren't a permanent solution. They need to be replaced every few years. And oh, by the way, at night, there's no sun to absorb the light of to create that electricity. And your little windmills, those take an enormous amount of oil to produce. Not to mention the fact that they kill birds, even endangered birds, at a pretty alarming clip. You would think a bird could see it coming, but no, apparently not. It's a killing field under these things. And also, by the way, the wind doesn't always blow. I realize that's a problem when you get energy from the wind. Now, you want to put up windmills, you want to put up... Uh, what the uh, oh no, the, not to mention all the windmills that kill all the whales off the coast of New Jersey. They're not all those whale bodies were not all dumped there by the mob. But the wind doesn't always blow. The sun doesn't always shine. What do you do in the interim? Well, you want to shut down the coal-fired power plants, and you won't allow the building of nuclear power plants. What is your plan B? Giant wind-up toys and rubber bands? There is no plan B. There is no concern for what comes next. They don't give a damn. It's about feel good. It is about limping across the finish line at the next election and the next election and the next election. And the more that the Democrats are continually limping this way and winning elections, even by small margins, the further away from the ability to take care of ourselves we get. And sooner or later, we are going to walk ourselves past the point of no return. And the grid, which is being strained now because it's cold and is strained in the summer because it's hot, will eventually snap, will eventually break. 
will eventually cause catastrophic destruction, and it will be blamed on climate change. It will be blamed on the automobile. It will be blamed on you and be used as an excuse to further punish you when it realistically is their fault. They are preventing every measure we know that works to avoid this future problem. They are blocking everybody from doing anything that would prevent it so that when it happens, they'll all blame you and they'll say, we need even more of it. It's this typical leftist mentality. Big government has failed you. We need bigger government. No, we don't. Government nine times out of 10 isn't the solution to the problem. It is the problem. All right, that is enough for today. I say, I say, I say, let us go on our way. We'll be back tomorrow. It's Thursday. That much closer to the weekend. And man, I'm already ready for it. Have a great one. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you're enjoying the snow if you got some snow. And hopefully you get some snow if you didn't get any. It's fun. Snow is fun. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>